are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Good morning, church. We are um, going to endeavor to tackle the entire chapter of Romans 11 this morning, which is quite a feat. Jason, bring me down just a hair, bud. Um, In 2 Peter 3.16, the Apostle Peter says that there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. Um, Here's the Apostle Peter confessing that he too struggles to understand Paul at times. And I think he might have been referring to this chapter of Scripture. Uh, Romans 11 is is a chapter, it's a passage that has been debated by theologians literally for centuries and centuries. Um, and I've got 30 cents, I mean 30 minutes to try to make sense of it. Now some of you are laughing, uh, not because I said I'm going to try to make sense of this really complicated passage, but because I said I was going to do it in 30 minutes. But I'm going to do my best on both fronts. Um, so for the past three weeks, if you're new with us or visiting with us, we've been making our way through uh, Romans 9 through 11, which kind of forms a section in Paul's letter uh, to Rome. And we've called this this series, this kind of mini-series within Romans, uh, we've called it Gospel Deeps, uh, because in these chapters, the Apostle Paul ventures into deep gospel waters. Um, and his main concern in this section of Scripture is, is to try to answer questions surrounding uh, his fellow Jews' rejection of the gospel. We can see this in, in the questions that Paul keeps asking. So in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, he, he asks the question, has God's word Failed. In other words, um, does God not keep his promises? He had made all these promises to the Jewish people. Does God keep his word? Has his word failed? Romans chapter 9, verse 14, is there injustice with God? Romans chapter 9, verse 19, why does he still find fault then? In other words, what Paul's wrestling with is, is God unfair? Is, is he an unfair God? And then in, at the end of chapter 9, he asks the question, what should we say then? In other words, like, what's the conclusion of all of this? What do we make of all of this? And now in chapter 11, Paul again takes up more questions. Verse 1, has God rejected his people? In other words, has God written Israel off? Verse 11, have they, the Jews, he's referring to ethnic Jews here, stumbled so as to fall? Meaning, is there no coming back from their rejection of Jesus? All of these questions are really getting at Paul's main concern in this part of the letter, which is, what is God's plan for Israel? What is going on with the Jewish people? Romans chapter 10 ends with the declaration, 10, 21, to Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. This is a vivid picture that, that Paul paints for us, where, where God is pictured as as a parent holding out his hands, inviting their, their child to, to come and to get scooped up and to be held in his arms. But the rebellious toddler refuses to be picked up. And, and the picture is of Israel. He's saying, Israel, you are that rebellious, defiant toddler that refuses to be picked up. And Paul's basically asking the question, how, Sway? Like, how? How is this possible that the Jewish people, in light of their descendancy from the patriarchs and the promises that God gave them and their proximity to God's word, how is it possible that they have not embraced their Messiah? And what's going to happen with them moving forward? 
This is a massive concern for Paul, who is himself an ethnic Jew. His heart, he says, in this section, breaks for his own people. And he's also zealous to address these questions because God's character is essentially on trial. Does God keep his promises? Does God give up on people? What is God up to? And so once again, we find ourselves in these deep waters wrestling through this intersection of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And maybe, maybe you've been here for the past few weeks and and you find yourself asking, why are we going through a study like this? Maybe it's your first time and you're like, why in the world would you study this passage of scripture? Of all the things that you could preach on, why preach this passage? Can I be honest with you? I found myself asking that question. I found myself dreading this sermon. I mean, this isn't one of those passages that comes with a lot of one-liners and tweetable quotes. You know what I'm saying? And in my insecurity, I feel this pressure to preach messages that are crowd-pleasers. Some of you are like, since when? But I do. I do. I, I, I struggle. It would be nice to preach feel-good, warm, fuzzy messages every Sunday. And and truthfully, we live in a day, we live at a time when when a lot of people have no stamina for deep thinking. And so they have no endurance for deep preaching. Because because some of us prefer a soundbite theology. And maybe, maybe, I mean, because here's the truth. We're all being discipled all the time by something, right? And probably by multiple somethings. And so, and so maybe because of the world that we live in and the cultural moment we live in, you might think that the primary purpose of Sunday service is to get you hype or to entertain you. And so perhaps you, 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 you come here looking for a few one-liners that are going to walk you into the next week. And you think that's what the purpose of this time is. Now, to be clear, I'm not opposed to getting excited. Some of you need to wake up. We need some excitement. I'm not talking to you, Matthew. Stand strong, brother. Here's what I'm saying. When we gather for worship, it's not simply to get amped up. It's to grow in Christ. And part of growing in Christ means that we need to know all of God's word. Even the deep and the confusing parts. So we have to press into what all of God's word said. In in, in Acts chapter 20, Paul is addressing the the Ephesian elders, the elders at the church in Ephesus, before he departs from them. And, And one of the things that he says to them in his departure is that he did not hold back from declaring to them the entire counsel of God. He says, I gave you the full gamut of scripture. I gave you the whole book. And so we're here this morning in this chapter because it comes after Romans 10. And, and, and because we're trekking through this book, and, and we're here this morning because 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. All of it. And so we need this passage. We, we, we need to learn from this passage. There are things to be gleaned from this passage. And the last thing I'll say here before we dive in is, is that um, deep truth does not have to be something that we view as being in conflict with emotional worship. Sometimes we think that it's, it's an either-or, that oh, we're either these stoic, deep thinkers or we're these superficial, emotional worshipers. 
And for Paul, there's no disconnect. We're going to see this as we come to the end of this passage, that his theology, which Paul's theology is super deep, leads him to doxology. His his thinking of God leads him to worship of God. And so my aim this morning as we dig in is that we would be led to a place of praise, that this text would stir us to worship. And so we've already noted that at the macro level, this passage is about God's plan for Israel. That's what 9 through 11 is all about. And we'll notice that as we move through the text this morning. What I want to do this morning is I want us to zoom in a little bit closer Because what we find in this passage is that it's also all about the heart. This passage has a lot to say to us about our hearts. And so this morning, I want us to notice four truths about the heart from this passage. We'll notice hardened hearts. We'll notice humble hearts. We'll notice hopeful hearts. And then we'll notice hearts that cry, hallelujah. Let's look at them one at a time. First, we see in this passage a lot about hardened hearts. In verse 1, Paul asks the question, has God rejected his people? And again, he's asking this question because the Jewish people have, by and large, not believed the gospel. Some have. There have been a few who have come to faith in, in Christ. But by and large, the Jewish people missed out on the Messiah. And, and now, instead, the gospel is going to the Gentiles. By the way, the word Gentile... if that's a new word for you. It just means non-Jew. So it literally means the nations. So the gospel came first to Israel. A few Jews believed, a lot rejected, and now the gospel is going to the nations. And so the natural question for Paul is, has God rejected his people? Since the gospel is now moving beyond them to the nations, is God done with Israel? And, And Paul's answer is an emphatic no. Absolutely not. God has not rejected his people. And so the first exhibit, exhibit A for Paul, is himself. He goes, I am an ethnic Jew. God didn't reject me. Right? And and, and then he points back to the Old Testament, to the story of Elijah. If you remember, the prophet Elijah, at one point in his ministry, appeals to God, God, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one that hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. And God says, Elijah, that's not true. I've preserved 7,000 who I've tucked away and hidden and kept who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so Paul points to that story to say that's what God has done consistently throughout history. God has, for in every generation, preserved a people for himself. He, he calls these people his elect. Notice, he says, God, verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they are trying to take my life. But what's God's answer to him? I have 7,000 left for myself who have not bowed down to Baal. And in the same way, then, there is at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. Paul says in Elijah's day, God preserved some. And even so, in the present day, God has kept some Jews for himself. In every generation, God has preserved a believing remnant for himself. And then verse 7, he asks the question, What then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. And so he says, with the people of God, with Israel... 
there's actually a believing Israel and an unbelieving Israel. And so the point here is this, that by and large, when Jesus came, the Jewish people were looking for someone very different than who showed up. They were looking for a Messiah, but not a Messiah that looked like Jesus. And so when Jesus showed up, they didn't have eyes to see him for who he was. But the elect did. God's chosen ones did. The remnant did find it. They did see Jesus for who he was, and they did believe in him. But Paul says the rest were hardened. And that word literally means petrified. It's it's the picture of a petrified rock. It's rock solid. Tony Rinke explains that a hard heart is an obstinate and calloused heart that fails to respond to God or obey him. He says a hard heart is blind to the precious value of the gospel and refuses to embrace Christ. So what Paul's saying here is that most Israelites had hard hearts that were impenetrable by the gospel. They did not have eyes to see. They did not have ears to hear the good news of Jesus. Now, when I read that, my first question is, what do I do with that? Because it sounds like what Paul is saying in this passage is that God is the one doing the harden. And so the question is, does God harden hearts, right? You find yourself asking that question? And from one vantage point, we have to say yes, that God does harden hearts. We, we can't get around it, right? So we, we go to the story of the Exodus. And we read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may do these miraculous signs of mine among them. In fact, ten times in the story of the Exodus, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You know what's interesting, though? Ten times it it also says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So this hardening was as much Pharaoh's act as it was God's act. There's mystery here in in this transaction. And if you go back and read the story of the Exodus, here's what you'll find. You'll find that God's act of hardening Pharaoh's heart was simply his revealing of himself to Pharaoh. Eric Raymond explains that as God revealed his power, as God revealed his supremacy, as God revealed his love for his own people through the signs and through the wonders and through the plagues, this very revelation is what hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so it's been said before that the same sun that melts the wax can harden the clay. The same act of revelation that draws some in pushes others away. The very same actions of God that strengthened the faith of Israel petrified the heart of Pharaoh. What a sobering thought. This is a sobering thought. Consider what this means. It means that you can never, I want you to listen to this, you can never encounter God and remain neutral to him. Every time God reveals himself to you, your heart will either be softened or hardened. You can't come to worship and sit under God's word and respond neutrally. Some of you guys are believing that lie. I can come here, I can hear this word, 
and I can keep my options open. I'm just going to sit on the fence. Now, the reality is every time you sit under God's word, every time God reveals himself to you, you either respond in trust or defiance. You either respond in obedience or abstinence. Every time. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, if people will not say to God, thy will be done, God will say to them sometime, thy will be done. You hear what Lewis is saying? He's saying that if you encounter God's truth and you reject it, by the way, you can reject God's truth by ignoring it. I tell my boys all the time, delayed obedience is disobedience. I say that all the time, don't I, boys? Delayed obedience is disobedience. If you ignore or if you delay or you reject God's truth, there may come a time where God says to you, you want it your way? Have it. And this is the curse that Paul talks about in Romans 1, where God hands people over to themselves. God can hand you over to your defiance and give you the very thing that you think you want. And this is what it means for God to harden your heart. It means that he gives you over to your own unwillingness. Notice that in verse 23, Paul describes what he referred to as a hardening in verse 7, now as unbelief. A hard heart is an unbelieving heart. And so the reason why many Jews missed out on Jesus was because they refused to see what was right in front of them. They were unwilling to see the signs. They were unwilling to hear Jesus' words. They were, un, they were looking for someone other than Jesus to be their Messiah. And so they would not listen to Jesus in Matthew 23, 37. As he, as he weeps over the city of Jerusalem, he cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing you were not willing. And the same could be said today. There are, there are many right here in our city. There are many in our world today, just like Israel, who have hardened their hearts to, to Jesus. And the issue is not lack of evidence. It's not a lack of access. For some it is, but for others it's not a lack of access. The issue is a hard heart. I just have to ask, could that be you? The danger in hardening your heart to Christ is that you never know when God might, you, might hand you over to your own stubbornness and say to you, thy will be done. This is why the psalmist declares, today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Listen to me, if, if, if you're here this morning and God is saying something to you, if he is drawing you to believe in his son Jesus, or if he's calling you to repent of a sin, or if he's leading you to walk in obedience in a particular way, do not harden your heart. Don't play games with God. Now maybe you, if you're honest with yourself, have been hardening your heart for a long season now. This morning, receive this. This morning could be the day that you say yes to God. And turn to him. Consider, consider the mercy and the patience of God in this passage. Listen to verse 23. And even they, it's referring to ethnic Jews, who have rejected their Messiah, who have hardened their hearts, even they, if they do not remain in unbelief, 
will be grafted in because God has the power to graft them in again. In this chapter, Paul uses this extended metaphor of an olive tree. And the olive tree represents God's promises that he started making all the way back to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, the promises of a land, of blessing, of salvation. And so the olive tree represents God's promises. And Paul says earlier in verse 20 that because of their unbelief in Jesus, Jewish branches were broken off of that tree. That is to say, Jews were cut off from the promises and from the salvation because of their hardness of heart. But now in verse 23, he says that if they don't remain in unbelief, if they turn to Jesus and they call on his name, God will graft them back in. Paul is saying that God is a master gardener. He can make dead branches live again. He can reattach broken off branches to the life-giving tree of Jesus. And this leads to the second thing we see about hearts in this passage, which is not only hardened hearts, but hopeful hearts. Hopeful hearts. Paul is hopeful that some of his fellow Jews can and will be saved. Verse 11, Paul asks the question, Have they, the Jewish people, stumbled so as to fall. In other words, is their rejection of Jesus the end of the story? And again, Paul emphatically says, absolutely not. This is not the end of the story. God's not done. On the contrary, he goes on in 11. By their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, this is where we start getting deep. Paul sees two reasons for having a hopeful heart. Two reasons for why he has a hopeful heart. The the first reason is that Paul sees God working out his amazing plan of bestowing his grace on all peoples. Paul is hopeful because he sees God's plan in action, right? Cue the Drake music, God's plan. Through Israel's rejection of Christ, the gospel is spreading like wildfire to the nations. Now, the book of Acts actually pictures this vividly for us. In in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. And and Paul tells us that in every city that he would go to, he would go to the Jew first. He would go to the synagogue, and he would would proclaim Christ in in every synagogue, in every city that he went to. And so he, he does this yet again. We read in Acts chapter 14, it says the following Sabbath. So he goes one week, and he draws some attention, and so he shows up the next week, and it says the following Sabbath, almost the whole town assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was saying, insulting him. So Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning now to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole world region. It's exactly what Paul's talking about here in Romans 11. He goes to the Jews. A few Jews do believe. 
but the Jewish leaders don't like what's happening. They get, they get envious of the, of the attention Paul and Barnabas are getting, and so they try to turn the crowd against Paul. And so Paul says to them, okay, well, we'll just go to the Gentiles. And when he goes to the Gentiles, the Gentiles start coming to faith in Jesus in droves. I mean, many, many Gentiles believe in Jesus. And, and, and this pattern actually happens over and over and over again in the book of Acts. So much so that as Paul reflects on it here in the letter of Romans, he sees in it God's intentional plan for how he's spreading the gospel. Through the Jews' rejection of Christ, salvation is coming to the Gentiles. And so he says in verse 25, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is God's plan. This is how the message is spreading to the nations. In other words... Israel's hardness of heart did not stump God's plan. God is sovereign over all things. He is working out his plan of salvation perfectly. And through Israel stumbling over the gospel, the good news has spilled out all over the Gentiles. Church, let me bring this a little closer to home. There will be times in our lives where it may seem at first as if God doesn't know what he's doing. That his plans are being thwarted. We need to remember that God sits on the throne and is working all things according to the counsel of his will. He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times what will come to pass, saying, my plan will take place and I will do all my will. Friends, let's rest assured. Let's rest secure in the good news that our God is on his throne. He knows what he's doing. Nothing has slipped past him. He's got a plan, and he's executing it to perfection. This was a comfort for Paul. It gave him hope. But, but he was also hopeful because he saw in what God was doing an opportunity to draw some of his Jewish kinsmen back to Christ. That's the second reason why Paul was hopeful. He was hopeful because of provocative grace. Provocative grace. Paul sees the opportunity for God to still save Jews through making them jealous of the gospel that's going to the Gentiles. Listen to it, verse 13. Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles insofar as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if I might somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them. Paul is saying that that when he goes to the Gentiles with the gospel, he hopes to draw as much attention as he can to what God is doing. He wants to draw as much attention as he can to the kindness of God, to the grace of God that's being poured out over these non-Jews so that his Jewish brothers and sisters would see God's kindness and want to get in on it. Now, we need to clarify one thing here. The way that that Paul is using the word jealous here is not a a negative, sinful jealousy. It's really uh, the idea of of wanting to experience or or participate in something that looks really, really good. Imagine how an orphan child might feel as he looks upon the interaction, the loving interaction between a father and his son. And how that orphan might long for that kind of love that kind of attention, that kind of affection, that kind of relationship and wish for a dad. 
That's the picture here. Paul holds out hope that some Jews, in seeing God's goodness manifest among the Gentiles, will be provoked to want to get in on it. Church, one of my hopes for our church is that we would be a provocative people. That God's grace among us would entice people into the kingdom. We should be a sweet-smelling aroma to the world. Have you, ever, have you ever gotten out of your car somewhere, and as soon as you open the door, uh, the smell of, of, of barbecue smoke just hits your nose, like, instantaneously? You didn't even know you were hungry, but you got out, and it's like, there it was? Man, I need some barbecue right now. I want our church to be like that. I want people to see the love of God and the kindness of God and the care of God and the forgiveness of God so manifest in the way that we treat one another that they are provoked to want to get in on what we got. This, by the way, is the aim of our gospel communities. You know that, right? We want to live the kind of radical, sacrificial, relational lives of hospitality and care for one another that people see the way that we provide meals for one another and care for one another, that they go, I need that in my life. That's Paul's hope here, that the Jews would actually come to faith through the grace of God being manifest among Gentile believers. And what he knows is that a key ingredient for this to work is humility. And that's the third kind of heart we see in this passage. Paul not only talks about hardened hearts and hopeful hearts, but he talks about humble hearts. One of, the, one of the clear concerns for Paul in this passage is the call to every member of the church in Rome to have a humble heart. Now, whether there was an actual issue going on or just a, a potential problem that Paul can kind of see manifesting itself in the church, he makes a plea to the Gentile believers in Rome to not get arrogant. Listen to it, verse 17. Now, if some of the branches were broken off, remember, that's Jewish believers. And you, though a wild olive branch, that's Gentile, were grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree. Do you hear what Paul's doing here? If some Jews did not believe and you did believe and so you were brought into the promises of God, you're now a son of Abraham, you now experience salvation, do not boast that you are better than those branches. But if you do boast, remember this. You do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. Then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True enough. They were broken off because of unbelief. But you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but beware. Because if God did not spare natural branches, he will not spare you either. Therefore, consider the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you, if you remain in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in because God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from your native wild olive tree against nature and grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? 
Paul recognizes the potential for some of these Jewish Christians to begin to think something of themselves because these Jews were broken off that they might be grafted in. And he says to them, don't get puffed up here. The only reason they were broken off is because they did not believe in Jesus. And the only reason you were grafted in was because you put your faith in Jesus. It's not anything you did. Faith is the anti-work, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. It's all grace. That's what Paul's saying here. It's all grace. And so here's why this is important. Here's why Paul is pressing this home. Because the only way Paul's hope of seeing Jews drawn to Christ through the Gentiles will ever happen is if they manifest a humility that exudes a hospitality that says, come on in and enjoy this with us. You can get in on this the same way that we did. Turn from your unbelief and be grafted in. Let me bring this home. The world will not be drawn to Christ through prideful Christians. A prideful Christian is an oxymoron. We have one thing to boast in. It ain't us. We boast in Christ. The world will be drawn to Christ through a humble church. And isn't this, by the way, how we got in the kingdom in the first place? Humility is the way of the kingdom. And so Paul realizes that it's going to take a double dose of humility for a Jew to humble himself and come to Christ through a Gentile church. What a scandal that would be. But Paul holds out hope. And truthfully, it takes a double dose of humility for anyone to come to Christ because Anyone who would come to Jesus must deny himself and take up his cross. And this is a countercultural idea. We live in a moment where the, the hot button language is self-actualization and, and self-expression. We put self at the middle of everything. You know what one word Jesus used with self to describe a Christian? Self-denial. The gospel is confounding. It is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God and it is the power of God. And as Paul thinks about this plan to save sinners, as he, as he meditates on what God might be up to, that, that he, has, he has this plan that he has enacted, that Jews have hardened their hearts and the gospel is now spilled over onto Gentiles. But even as it spills over onto Gentiles, he's going, hey, that could actually be a magnet to draw some Jews back to Christ. As he thinks about what God is, is up to, he just can't help himself. The whole thing is just too much for him, and he erupts into praise. Paul is led to this place of, of uncontainable worship. And that's the fourth heart that we see in this passage is a heart that cries hallelujah. Notice what happens. Paul is doing his best answer to try to answer these deep questions about God's plan for Israel. And as he considers what God is up to, as he meditates on the mystery of the plan of God, he's overcome and he just begins to worship. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. God, we can't plummet what you're doing. 
We can't understand it. How, how untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul gets to the end of, of this deep, deep plummet into trying to, to navigate God's plan of salvation for the Jews and the Gentiles. And, and, and where he lands is just worshiping. Because nobody could have come up with this but God. Only a holy God could conceive this plan. I just wonder, like, when's the last time you slowed down long enough to really meditate on the gospel? And how crazy it is. C.S. Lewis once called Christianity the true myth. It, it was such a fantastic, wonderful idea that he said it had to be true. Because no man could ever come up with it. Think about it. The creator of the world sent himself through his one-of-a-kind son Jesus to save the very creation he made from its own demise. Jesus, the God-man, made atonement for our sins through the cross, rose victoriously from death, holds the keys to eternal life for all who believe in him. And for the past 2,000 years, this message has been spreading all over the world so that people from every tongue and every language and every tribe might be numbered among the people of God and grafted into the family. Think about it. Think about it. The gospel got to you. You live in 21st century North America. And the gospel got to you from the Middle East, from 2,000 years ago. The gospel got to you. In God's wisdom, in God's plan, it spread all the way to Birmingham, Alabama, and it continues to spread until one day the full number of God's family will be numbered. It's crazy. That should lead us to worship, church. The other day during our DNA time, Trill and I were talking and he asked me this question. It, it struck me because I hadn't asked it in a while. He said, do you ever wonder why me? God, why did you save me? A few minutes later, we prayed together. And Trill just began to say, God, we love you. We love you. We love you. Jesus, we love you. We love you. We love you. It was just this eruption of, God, you're so good to us. I don't deserve this. I think that gets us close to what Paul is doing here in Romans 11. Church, I long for us to be a people that just cry out, hallelujah, that show up believing that we have something to sing about on Sunday morning with a renewed wonder at God's mysterious, amazing plan of salvation. Let us not become numb to the mystery and the wonder of God's grace. And here's what I believe. I believe more than anything else, more than evangelistic strategies, which we should have, more than good programs, which we need, I believe more than anything else, what will make us a provocative people that draws others to Christ will be being a people who kill our pride and lift up our praise. If we are a humble church and a church that is happy in Christ, 
God will use us. He will draw many to himself. Jesus said, if my name be lifted up, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Let's pray together. Father, be lifted up. Jesus, be lifted up. Spirit, would you move in us to lift up Jesus, God, in our hearts, in our lives, in this church. We want you to be exalted in us, God. We don't want to be numb to the mystery and the wonder of grace. God, maybe your work this morning is to strip back some of the calluses that some of us have. To make the wound fresh. That we might sing again, God. God, maybe in others' hearts, they've been hardening their hearts. I pray that they would heed your word today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. God, draw some to Christ. Lord, lead others of us out of rebellion and disobedience to submission and allegiance to Jesus once again. God, stir us up to wonder. Lord, use us for your glory and your kingdom. Make us a holy, humble, happy people, we pray in Christ's name. sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.